0: Good morning. morning. I'm nervous, so I just want to get that out there right away. Um, And I want to let you know, too, that Drew was very careful to do a good job, as any good pastor would, to humble me before he let me come up here. Um, When he asked me to preach, he first told me that I was not his first choice to preach in his stead. I was just the first one to say yes. And then when I asked the next logical question, was, which was, do I get to wear a robe, he responded, hmm, I don't think we have one that would fit you. And I don't think he meant it this way, but I'm definitely going to spend some time talking to him about how to talk to women about what fits and doesn't fit. And then finally, he told me that I could either preach on the word give or my favorite Bible verse. And then he issued a more emphatic than necessary no before I even got the entire question out of whether I could just preach on anything I wanted. So here I am without a robe, and I've chosen to speak on the word give. As Chappie mentioned, we're in the midst of this series about words that Jesus used most frequently, and the word give is the verb that Jesus used the most frequently, which is really helpful to me When I think about, what does God want me to do? And it seems like I'm always asking that question. What does God want me to do? How does God want me to respond? I think all of us are asking that question a lot. So let's pray, and then we will get into this a little bit. Lord, thank you for bringing each of us here today. We recognize that you are the giver of all things. And Lord, we desire to receive from you. Because we believe That you are good. We believe steadfastly in your goodness. We want to choose to receive the gifts you have for us. Even if we don't always see them as gifts that we would give ourselves. Lord, we pray that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts today would please you. Be in control of this service. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're going to start in Matthew 16 verses 24 to 26 and the context here is that jesus has just told his disciples that he is going to die and be crucified and then rise from the dead and you know the whole peter thing where peter says no please don't and jesus says get behind me satan that stuff just happened and so jesus tells his disciples this he says if anyone would come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? I want to repeat that last question. Or what shall a man give in return for his life? And that's actually a question that's echoed in Mark and is actually an echo of an earlier verse in Psalms. And I don't know about you, but when I've looked at this passage before, I've always looked at the first part. If anybody would come after me, let him pick up his cross and follow me. I haven't, I haven't asked that question. What shall a man give in return for his life? And I think the question that Jesus asks here is a rhetorical question. Rhetorical questions don't require answers because the answers are obvious, right? Right? In this instance, Jesus asked the question of what a person could give in exchange for his or her life for the purpose of highlighting the essence of what I'm going to call the spiritual economy of grace. And that is a very obvious reality that there is absolutely nothing we can give in return for our lives in Christ. I can do nothing to pay God back for coming to earth, exemplifying to me how to live a holy and perfect life, And then dying a horrific death to pay the penalty for my sin that I owed There's just nothing I can do to pay him back for that What can a man give in exchange for his life? Nothing However, Jesus' question prompts a different one in us, I think And that question is not what can we give in exchange for our lives But what can we give in response to the gift that God has given us of our lives This question highlights the reality that as Christians, we are beckoned away from the transactional economy of the world, where goods and services are exchanged and there's no such thing as a free lunch, to a spiritual economy of grace in which we are given all things by God with no expectation of our returning anything to him. And this economy is subversive. It's one that the world doesn't see, and it's one that the world doesn't operate by. We have to fight to operate in light of this economy. I want to explain a little bit about what I mean by the spiritual economy of grace here. I'm going to define it first, and this is my definition, so we'll see how well it flies. The spiritual economy of grace is the collective force of God's spirit, God's word, individual members of the body of Christ, and the talents and resources we have been given freely by God. It is the supernatural working of this intricate system made up by God, God's people, and God's resources whose existence purposes to glorify God in the world. Now that definition has a lot of churchy language in it, and I want to break it down a little bit because I think it's important that we... We dissect churchy language and really try to understand. So first of all, economy, for those of you who are a little bit slow like me, economy is simply a system, a functioning system in an area that consists of its resources, its production, and its distribution of stuff. So in America, our economy is a summation of all our people, our natural resources, our production capabilities, our trade practices, our habits of consumption. Essentially, it's our system that works together to make us prosper. And perhaps you can make the argument not prosper. So that's what an economy is. And a spiritual economy, thus, is, where, is a system where spiritual parts work together. So spiritual economy of grace. Grace, according to Berkhoff in Systematic Theology, is the idea that the blessings bestowed upon the receiver are freely given. And they are not in consideration of any claim or merit. We get that part of grace, right? We hear that often, that grace is an undeserved free gift. We hear that. But I love this second part of grace, of the definition of grace. Burkhoff says, Furthermore, the word is expressive of the emotion awakened in the heart of the recipient of such favor, thus acquiring the meaning of gratitude or thankfulness. So grace really has two parts. It's the part, of course, that is free and undeserved. God gives us grace as an act that we did nothing to earn. It is free and it is a gift. And yet the other part of grace is that when we recognize this gift that God has given, there is an awakening in our hearts of a sentiment, which is gratitude. I love that. We're not just expected to act as perfunctory beings, just obeying out of no sentiment. But we are meant to be wooed into a love relationship with God by an act of his grace. Again, the purpose of a spiritual economy is to glorify God in the world, and that word glorify is another churchy word we throw around a lot, and I want to make sure we understand what it means. Glory, in its original definition, was the weight of something. You know, those like weird scales that kind of go like this, and you see them in old movies? That, that was really where the word glory came from. So you'd put an object on one side of the scale, and the amount of weight that it took to make that object balance was its glory, So glory initially meant weight or value. So when we talk about glorifying God, we are talking about the value that we, as part of a spiritual economy, are giving to God in the world, to the name of Jesus in the world. The glory of God, this is from from John Piper, who writes about the glory of God all the time. I love him. He says, the glory of God is a way of saying that there is objective, absolute reality to which all human admiration, wonder, awe, veneration, praise, honor, acclaim, and worship is pointing. We were made to find our deepest pleasure in admiring what is infinitely admirable. That is the glory of God. We were made to take pleasure in God's glory, in God's weight, in God's value. That's supposed to be what creates a sentiment of gratitude and excitement and joy in us. Thus, the primary goal of a spiritual economy of grace is to use all that we've been given in turn to in turn give to God, the God of the universe greater weight and glory than anything else in the world. That's the primary goal of a spiritual economy. We have to understand, I think, in order to make this system work that There are certain roles that we play and the first role we need to understand is that God really is the soul giver He is the one who gives that's so hard for me to understand I constantly think that I have to go out and find my own pleasure, but it is God who gives in fact When you look at the scriptures in which Jesus uses the word give this was the the best thing I took out of studying for the sermon the majority of the time When Jesus uses the word give, it is in the context of God the Father giving to the Son or in the context of God himself or Jesus giving to his people. It is very rarely in the context of man giving back to God. It is very rarely in the context of man giving to one another. And when it is man giving to one another, it's often a transactional type of giving, like the earthly economy It's not the spiritual economy. God is the giver. And Jesus says this over and over again. We as human beings, our role in the spiritual economy literally is to be vessels who are filled with gifts of grace. And as we are filled, before we are filled, I guess, we have to recognize Those gifts. We have to recognize that God is constantly giving to us, which is hard to do because, again, we're beckoned away by so many distractions in the world that it becomes so difficult to recognize that God really is at work giving to us all of the time. But that's what we need to do. When we are able to recognize the gifts that God gives us, and when in our hearts there is awakened that sentiment of gratitude, then we are able to respond out of a place, not of want, but of fullness. And our response does yield the the glory of God in the world. And I think the spiritual economy of grace can really be summed up again in Piper's words that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. The prayer that Jesus prays in John 17, which again is at the end of his life, echoes many other verses in the gospels where jesus highlights the economy of grace by using the word give and i want to look at that now he's talking to the father and you know the father probably doesn't need to hear these words but i'm glad he prayed them because i sure need to hear them he says this now they meaning his disciples know that everything you have given me is from you For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. The glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me. That they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Do you see how much God has given to the son just in that prayer? He's given the son everything. The father literally has given Jesus all things. He's given him all power over all flesh. That's huge when you think about it. Any person in your life, Jesus has authority over. He has given Jesus work to do on the earth, real tangible work. He's given Jesus disciples and followers so that his name would continue, so that the glory of God will continue to be made known. He has given Jesus the glory that existed before the foundation of the world, and finally, he gave Jesus the cup, which... Would be his death by crucifixion he gave all of those things to jesus as a gift and in turn jesus has given his disciples literal sus- literal sustenance in the form of food and drink He gives his disciples a mouth and the wisdom to speak It says in the book of Luke he's given his disciples eternal life and the promise the assurance of it He's given his disciples an example to follow He's given his disciples his peace in the midst of a world that would say you have to be anxious You have to be in striving all the time He's given him the given his disciples the words which the father gave to him and the glory which the father gave to Jesus And he's given his disciples a new commandment to love one another Now, I want to acknowledge that our role in a spiritual economy of grace is not really as simple and as easy as maybe it sounded thus far. Living as a Christian in our world is certainly complex. Believing in the truth of a spiritual economy of grace sometimes seems absolutely ridiculous. And in light of this, we have to be intentional about choosing the economy that we will give ourselves to and how we will do that. So how do we intentionally partake in the spiritual economy of grace? Again, we have to first recognize that we're vessels. We are receivers. In fact, in order for God's gifts to really be manifested, we have to receive them. And in order to receive God's gifts to us, we have to recognize them. We have to set our attentions and affections on the glory of God in all things. We have to wake up to the reality that we really are alive in a world that is filled with supernatural gifts. There's a writer who I'm really into right now. Her name's Ann Voskamp, and Her book 1000 gifts was the subject of a class that was taught in the foundation hour last session And she she writes a blog called a holy experience and her main purpose in writing is to Record all of the gifts that she sees god giving and she recognizes that in order really to to um Receive God's gifts, she has to pay attention because if we don't pay attention, life sweeps over us. And before we know it, a week has passed, a month has passed, a year has passed. And we have operated according to the world's economy, not according to God's economy. And so we have to pay attention. And Voskamp says that being receptive to sovereign grace, just as He gives it, and not as we would take it for ourselves, that is the life of Christian sacrifice. How else do you bless your father Apart from gratitude For all these gifts bestowed Voskamp has purpose To pay attention to God's gifts Large and small Those that give great pleasure And those even That give through pain She notices The salvation experience of a child As she notices A pile of freshly grated cheddar cheese Sitting on the counter As she notices The center bite of watermelon That is so delicious Most of my Gifts are in the form of food. As she notices an untimely illness, even that is a gift. I don't know how to do that, but she notices those things. And I'm challenged by the question of whether or not I really believe that all the gifts that fill my days are really authored by God. Scripture says they are. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, right? And yet, so often, I somehow convince myself that I'm the provider of my gifts. And I strive, and I strive, and I strive, and I strive, and I strive. And ironically, when I strive to meet my own needs, then the degree to which God can meet my needs is lessened because I've already stuffed myself full of so much stuff that God doesn't have very much space to fill anymore with holy things. Now, I want to acknowledge, because I might get in big trouble if I don't, that it can be really tempting to use the theology that we've discussed today to relieve us of responsibility to action. After all, if we really can give nothing back to God in exchange for the lives that he's given us, and if our dwelling on his glory as our primary delight is the only thing we have to do, then is there really need for us to give anything? Why do it? If all we have to do is just dwell, is just sit around and meditate all day long on the glory of God. It's a very dangerous theology. Very dangerous theology. If we take this view, we are living an incomplete version of the Christian life. We are ignoring, among other clear passages in Scripture, James' words that faith without works is dead. And what I don't want to communicate is that we have no responsibility to act. In fact, when we really understand what God has given us, we are free to act and we must do so. We must play our part in the holy economy of grace. Jesus does command his disciples to do some things. He commands us to give some things. He says We're supposed to give money for the welfare of the poor and for the spreading of the gospel He says we're supposed to give food and drink to those who need it He says we're supposed to give care to orphans and widows And I hope that each of us is involved in those things in some way I hope that we are but I would put forth That the most important thing about our giving is not what the object is we give, but instead our understanding that the substance of our giving, be it money or something else, belongs to the person of God and is really just being given through us. So I go back to the question we asked at the beginning, what can I give in response to the life God has given me? And one of the things I want to say that I love the most about this church is that my brothers and sisters here show me practical examples of this all the time. They really do. This is a place where people understand the economy of grace. They understand here that the material things they possess and even their very lives have been given to them by God as an act of grace. And the result of this type of conviction is a relentless offering of one's full being and resources back to God for the purpose of glorifying Him. I want to tell you some examples of things I've witnessed that speak to this kind of grace. I've witnessed a couple to whom God has given a small business and because they really recognize God as the giver of all, they give their business straight back to him by offering dignified jobs to people who've been written off by others as unemployable. I've witnessed a family who's taken seriously God's charge to care for orphans because they understand that the life and even the biological family they've been blessed with are not merely gifts for their own pleasure, but actually gifts that can yield a truly redemptive joy which runs much deeper. I've witnessed a woman... To whom God has given an ethnicity different from mine, convinced of God as the giver of all things, offer me a bag full of hair products for my little girl, who also happens to have been given a different ethnicity for me. And God bless those women who know I need the help because I do. I walk my kids to their Sunday school room each week and see images on the walls created by a woman to whom God has given the gift of artistic expression and who knows that art was never intended to merely be beautiful, but instead to speak boldly to a holy beauty, existent but yet unrevealed in its fullest form. I've witnessed a teenage boy who speaks for a generation often disregarded, declare his desire to be a part of this church and to see it thrive. I've witnessed that woman lurking week in and week out at the church entrance bidding those who enter here to serve the poor because somehow she knows God's heart in a way I'm not sure I do. I've witnessed people who've been financially blessed by God emphatically declare their wealth God's money, determine that their net worth is only as valuable as the witness it can bear to the character of God and the redemption of his earth. And I've witnessed witnessed older, not old, but older people who travel all over the crazy world, even to places on the State Department's list of at-risk locations in the name of Jesus because they understand that the State Department doesn't fully understand the economy of grace. These people inspire me to know God's love more fully and more deeply. They show me what it means to be really convinced of the existence of God and the relentless outpouring of his gifts into the vessels of their lives. They've rejected the economy of the world in order to pay attention to the spiritual truths and gifts that the world aims to cover up. And when they've rejected a worldly economy in exchange for a spiritual one, they have played their part in a way that makes me want to play my part. The people I've mentioned are not superhuman. They're people who just understand, at least most of the time, that the beauty of the glory of God and the privilege in testifying to this glory is a greater privilege than anything the world could give them. They have well answered the question, what can a man give in light of his life? The difference between a typical economy and a spiritual economy of grace is this. The primary driver in a typical economy is demand, is want. In other words, it is a place of unfulfillment that drives the whole cycle of manufacturing, production, and consumption. We want, and so we produce, and we consume, and so it goes. But in a spiritual economy of grace, the driving force is not want, it's abundance. The driving force is expectant dependence on God and fulfillment in the gifts that he's given. He desires to so fill us that we are not driven to seek our own pleasure because we're devoid of it. Instead, we are driven to praise and adoration and bold response because we are acutely aware of how blessed we are. We give not because we think we owe something or because we aim to get something back, but instead because we are so overflowing with the mercy and love and peace of God that the most natural thing in the world for us to do is to give everything that we have and to give it creatively and boldly. Amen.